This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. Earlier this month, we talked to Elizabeth Fenton and Nicole Strand from the Presidential Bioethics Commission about Gray Matters, their recent report on the ethics of neuroscience research. For this episode, we have a clip from a panel discussion that was held at the 2007 Human Research Protections in an Evolving Research Landscape Conference, which was sponsored by Primer and Boston University School of Medicine. This panel talked about when social psychology and neuroscience research merge, challenges for the social science IRB in the 21st century. During this discussion, Dr. Kevin Oxner addressed the pragmatic concerns of a social cognitive neuroscientist. As a social psychologist and IRB member at Columbia University, Dr. Oxner has a unique perspective on questions about the ethics of neuroscience research and how IRBs can think about the risks and benefits involved. We talked in our last episode about the complicated nature of consent in neuroscience research. But what about the risks and benefits? Neuroscience and behavioral research has historically been difficult for IRBs to review because the risks and benefits can be difficult to define. Researchers, participants, and IRB reviewers also all tend to think differently in this context, especially about specific issues like incidental findings. Kevin Oxner talks a bit about these issues here in his Primer presentation, along with some very helpful tips for IRB review. Dr. Kevin Oxner is Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Department of Psychology at Columbia University. He currently directs the Social Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience Laboratory at Columbia. Let's turn to some of the ethical issues that come up uh, when doing this kind of research. So on the one hand, and I should, I should preface this by saying at Columbia, um, we have multiple different IRBs, and different schools differ in the way that the IRBs communicate with one another. But when I arrived there, there was a, a medical school IRB uh, and an arts and sciences campus IRB um, that although they would communicate with one another, um, didn't necessarily see the same kinds of research protocols. And so I was one of the first faculty members on the arts and sciences campus to start using neuroscience techniques and equipment. That MRI scanner that I showed you is on the medical school campus. So interesting issues arose about which IRB is going to uh, review our protocols, but more importantly, when they do, do they have the necessary expertise to evaluate this kind of research? So just for example, um, I found myself... uh, venturing uptown to talk to the medical school IRB to explain to them um, something about these kinds of procedures where we reject people, make them anxious, we, uh, people learn about their unpleasant thoughts and so on in college undergraduate populations to educate the medical school IRB about whether or not these practices are normative. Are they relatively safe? What kinds of risks are there? I remember them asking me in particular, um, so you're not telling students they have to do this to get a grade in your class? And I remember thinking, well, gosh, of course not. We didn't explicitly say that we weren't going to do that in the IRB protocol. But since their IRB never handled protocols that had undergraduate participants, it seemed like a natural concern that would arise for them. Um, And then, of course, there's the issue of deception. 
and in what circumstances is that uh, justifiable or not justifiable? Always an important question in research, but it's a common method used in social psychological studies. And porting that into a scanner environment, which has additional risks associated with it, um, raises additional issues that are important to talk about. I won't have time to address those today, but I just want to bookmark this for potential future discussion. Um, and then on the arts and sciences campus, people would ask questions about whether or not fMRI is safe. What are the risks associated with it? All important and essential questions to ask, and there is data available on them. And people at the medical school might have it, but people on the arts and sciences campus might not be privy to it because they wouldn't necessarily have members of the IRB who have that medical expertise. And then there's important questions about how we safeguard or screen participants, of course, for participation in this kind of research. I just want to mention, I'll, I'll, I'll be a little bit more concrete about some of these issues now. So what we found is that an essential way for this research to move forward um, in the best way possible is to have two kinds of things happen. On the one hand, it's educating IRBs about aspects of the work with which they aren't familiar. And I'm going to give you a few concrete examples. And then, of course, there's cooperation uh, that's necessary between um, IRBs that have differing amounts of expertise with this kind of interdisciplinary work. So one issue that I was surprised coming from a psychological background, but that came up quite a bit, was the way in which we make our research protocols uh, general, often in psychology labs, where we say, in general, we're going to show people a bunch of pictures of this kind. We're going to ask them to make a bunch of judgments of this kind. Or we're going to ask them to um, uh, be motivated in a variety of ways. We describe them in general and say, for any particular study, we would want to do some combination of those. That was common in a variety of uh, cognitive psychology laboratories I'd been a part of. But of course, um, these stakes are different when the stimuli that you're using aren't just innocuous photographs or line drawings. Um, they're very different when you're actually going to uh, be, say, socially rejecting someone. Um, and so one thing that came up was the extent to which an IRB can approve a program of research versus a very specific kind of experiment. And there's another way in which the generality versus specificity issue becomes important, I think, from an IRB perspective, which is that a lot of times when you're preparing a study to go into the scanner, you have to futz with it a bit. You have to get it just right. And the question is, how much futzing with that paradigm is going to be covered by your IRB protocol? How general can you be about how you're going to find out, well, these stimuli didn't quite work, so we need to swap those out and try other stimuli. So that's a concern that feels like a pragmatic one from my perspective, um, but it's an absolutely an ethical concern from the IRB's perspective. And we've found effective ways to work with our IRB about that, but I just want to flag that as an issue that you might find when you have... Um, behavioral researchers coming to do imaging research who need that kind of flex room in their protocols and an IRB might be very uncomfortable doing that because they want to know, for very good reasons, the, the, the brass tacks, every specific detail of what's going to happen. Um, another thing that's absolutely essential is that everybody understand, uh, have a realistic assessment of the risks involved with various kinds of methods. So, for example, how threatening is feeling rejected in the context of a scanner? It turns out that although people feel mildly unhappy about it, it doesn't have any long-lasting psychological effects. Um, and that's, uh, it's, it's important, I think, for researchers that wear the, like myself, who wear the researcher hat as well as the IRB hat to help educate IRBs about what normative practices are in some of these fields so that as you port them into a neuroscience context, you can understand that these aren't really going to be posing risks for the healthy young adult populations that might be used in a study. Um, of course, there are always important questions about how vulnerable participants are, and here I hearken back to um, the questions I was asked by a medical school IRB about whether or not college undergraduate participants would really be okay answering questions about their current mood. 
and whether or not that could raise particular issues for them. And it was something we hadn't thought about too much, to be honest, because we always thought, well, these college kids, they're always so moody, they're up and down, we just need to know where they're at that day. We ended up building in additional safeguards to our protocols, providing them with information about, uh, for example, counseling resources that are available and so on, um, on the off chance that in the scanner environment, which itself heightens anxiety for a number of participants, could change the way in which methods that we used in behavioral contexts hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, with absolutely no problem, might change when they move into the context of the scanner. Are there important questions about how safe fMRI is? I don't need to belabor this here, but so far as we know, um, it's completely safe, um, although there are important safeguards for pregnant women. So quite often, um, some IRBs, but not all, have restrictions on whether or not pregnant women can or can't be scanned. And you have to do pregnancy testing before you put women in the scanner. But there's one I want to touch on in a little bit more detail because it's the one about which there's the greatest amount of current misunderstanding, I think, especially in the lay public. And if you're a member of an IRB and you don't have neuroscience background, you might do things like read articles in the New York Times. Oops, I'm going to get to that in just a second. I'll, I'll get to the New York Times one. But there's, sorry, there's two kinds of concerns that come up. So as neuroscience research has been providing information about what's going on inside your brain structurally and functionally, um, there are two kinds of concerns that have come up. And there's an entire new field known as neuroethics that has grown up to deal with them. Let's take a step back here for a second. Neuroethics. That's a bit of a mouthful. But it simply refers to the discussions growing around the ethics of research that involves things like cognitive enhancement, brain imaging, and all the interesting consent and privacy concerns raised by these innovative research practices. We are able to study the brain much differently than we used to. We have better imaging methods, we have more computing power, and there are a lot of other tools that are generating information about how we think and behave in new ways. But along with this new science comes a lot of ethical questions. Neuroethics keeps track of these questions. If any of you are interested, I might direct you to an interesting article written by Martha Farah, one of our colleagues, um, that deals with the practical and philosophical issues of this sort of research. So there's two kinds of issues. One that I'll label the very real, um, and I'll just give you one kind of example. There's something known as an incidental finding when you're doing MRI research, and these are so important to think about that the NIH now has guidelines that uh, virtually every scanning center that I know about now has implemented in the context of its IRB protocols. And an incidental finding is, let's say, for example, we're scanning a participant for a study, and we happen, you have to collect a structural image of their brain as part of doing that. Let's say you notice something that looks a little odd. The person running the scanner isn't a trained neurologist or radiologist. What do you do? Is it a real potential finding? If it is, you might want to let that participant know in some way, but you have to do it in a careful way. So there are now um, protocols that are in place whereby any potential anomaly that is identified by uh, the person running the study will be passed to a radiologist um, who then can evaluate whether it's a real concern or not. And then there are protocols in place that set up procedures whereby you might contact participants uh, to let them know that they would need to seek additional consultation about the meaning of that finding. But there's another kind of concern that I think is not as real, at least right now. And it's the notion that brain data itself will allow us to bypass psychological methods and provide sort of Freud's royal road to the unconscious, if you will, that it'll detect magically the hidden thoughts that you might have. It'll be a lie detector. It'll do all these magical things for us. And there are corporations springing up all over the place that promise to be able to do this. Well, I'm here to tell you that we can't do that right now. But that doesn't stop people from writing op-ed pieces in the New York Times trying to convince you otherwise. 
So I won't name the names of these scientists, but you can check them out online yourself. Um, but there was an article, an op-ed article that appeared just a couple of weeks ago entitled, This is Your Brain on Politics, where they wrote, In anticipation of the 2008 presidential election, we used functional magnetic resonance imaging to watch the brains of a group of swing voters as they responded to the leading presidential candidates. Our results reveal some voter impressions on which the election may well turn. Now, I would suggest neuroscience data is very important, but it means nothing outside the context of careful behavioral measures to which you can relate the brain data. They did not collect that in this experiment. It was not peer-reviewed. And so far as we can tell, well, I won't even raise the ethical issues with this, but let me just give you a couple examples of their findings and then be very explicit about why you can't draw the conclusions they're drawing, because I think this is important information for members of IRBs to have. So just for example, um, they showed, and this is an image from the article, where you see activation in a brain structure known as the anterior cingulate cortex, and they claim it means emotions about Hillary Clinton are mixed. When viewing images of her, we saw significant activity in the anterior cingulate cortex, an emotional center of the brain that is aroused when a person feels compelled to act in two different ways, but must choose just one. It looked as if they were battling unacknowledged impulses to like Mrs. Clinton. That's going to be shocking to her campaign, I'm sure. For those of you from Massachusetts, there's an interesting one about your former governor. Um, so Mitt Romney shows potential. So he, his still photos prompted a significant amount of activity in the amygdala, indicating voter anxiety. But when the subjects saw and heard his video, their anxiety died down. Perhaps voters will become more comfortable with Mr. Romney as they see more of him. So the big problem here is that at least right now, Brain imaging is a coarse enough tool that we cannot infer what someone was thinking or feeling just by observing patterns of brain activity. If all you know is that you saw activity in the anterior cingulate cortex or the amygdala, that's not enough to tell you that they were anxious or that they were feeling conflict. One of the big reasons for this, just to hit on the Romney example, um, and I mentioned this already, is that you can only understand brain activity in relation to careful measures of behavior. The big issue here is that every region is involved in multiple behaviors. So the amygdala, although I alluded to it earlier as being initially characterized as a, almost a fear organ in the brain, it turns out that's not the best characterization of its function anymore. It's involved in positive emotion, detecting novel things, and anything that's arousing more generally. So with that in mind, can you really say just because you saw activity in the amygdala that it means people were feeling anxious? The answer is no, you can't. If you have some measure, behaviorally, where people are indicating anxiety, some other behavioral measure of the kind we've used for decades. As experimental psychologists, yes, you can say that. So there are no magic lie detectors with neuroimaging right now. There are no magic attitude detectors yet. We can't say what the future holds. It's possible that we'll have a precise mapping between function and structure 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And it's important that we start discussing those issues now. But simply put, we're not there yet. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.